Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. I'm your host, Brett King. We are the number one, world's number one global fintech podcast and radio show. We are going to have a, a great show today. We've, we're going to talk to FIS about embedded finance and uh, look at some really interesting examples of that tech and how it's playing out. It's certainly, things are certainly hot for fintech right now. We just had our biggest ever quarter, Q2, close to $31 billion of investment, VC investment breaking the previous record, which was in Q1. So fintech's either hot or in a bubble right now. My argument on this is pretty simple. The financial services sector is a $6 trillion a year industry. And since the introduction of the commercial internet, the financial services sector has been extremely resistant to business model change. And so what we're seeing now is a re-engineering of the sector that is, frankly, um, something that should have been done, um, you know, back in the, the mid-90s in many respects. But anyway, let's jump into today's show. We have uh, joining us from FIS, um, Matt Collicott. Matt has 29 years of experience in banking and finance, the last 21 years in cards and money movement with FIS. He's heads up B2B strategy and business development. Matt, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thanks, Brett. Great to be here. We also have Tyra Hall joining us. She is a strategic innovation executive for the B2B uh, solutions and partnerships business at FIS. She has 20 years of banking and payments experience, and uh, uh, she uh, previously worked for Visa, where she founded the Global Business Solutions Finance Practice. So, um, Tyra, welcome to Breaking Banks. Brad, thank you. So great to be here today. So um, when we look at all of this amazing fintech activity that's happening all over the place, you know, we hear a lot of talk about embedded finance and, um, you know, experiential finance, a lot of talk about CX right now. Um, so let's just talk about embedded finance as a category. Um, you know, Matt, you know, in, in terms of, you know, you've been in the business like I have over the last couple of decades, you know, who do you, who would you put in the category of the earliest adopters of this sort of thinking around embedded finance solutions, particularly in your area, which is B2B and for SMEs in the SME space? Uh, that's a great question, uh, Brett. I, I, it's actually, and, and I kind of hop back to your opening comment there, it's actually been a pretty underserved area in general, um, and especially for small businesses. Um, so, that, I mean, there were some in, initial kind of plays where we saw, you know, many years ago, um, the likes of, of Uber, like getting involved in payments and making payments invisible and kind of just part of the process. And we've seen a little bit of that um, from other sort of tech companies, startup companies, et cetera, really sort of starting to play into the space that was generally reserved for banks and bringing those solutions in. Um, and really that's, that's what embedded finance is. It's taking those financial services 
and putting them where the business lives, right? It's, it's, not, it's not having to log onto a different platform. It's not having to go to a different place. Um, it's really embedding them in the existing experiences. And, and I think that, you know, to again, to your point about the, the bank sort of market being resistant to change, we've massively underserved the small businesses in that area, right? There's yeah, some true. really good consumer experiences, a lot of work being done to like make that UX amazing. There's been a huge amount of work done to, to modernize and automate and use AI, et cetera, with large enterprise and small business kind of gets left in the middle and the products don't work very well for either of them. So that's a huge focus um, for us at the moment. Yeah, I, I mean, part of it is also like the tech stack, right? Is um, you know when like when we're talking about embedded finance for businesses, um, you know, just having access. Internet banking came late for a lot of com- commercial stuff, particularly for SMEs. You know, we had you know consumer internet banking. Yeah, it, it was still fairly primitive back in those days. All you could do was log in and look at your bank statement, right? Um, uh, that was that was the innovation of of yeah. uh, internet banking 1.0. But um, why do you think it is that internet banking on the SME side lagged, you know, significantly behind the retail side? I'll give my opinion, and then I'll throw to you, Tyra. I, I think mainly because it's it's hand-to-hand combat going after small businesses versus going after large organisations. Right? Small businesses are complex, but but going to talk to them one at a time and making a little bit of money on each one of them has never really been the focus of of anybody compared to going and winning a you know Fortune 500 company. So I feel like that's part of being part of the problem, Tyra. Yeah, I think I think I would add to Matt that I. Brett, what we've seen historically on the B2B side is that a lot of these large enterprise-grade solutions and software have been very workflow-oriented. So you have the behemoths, the SAPs and the oracles of the world that did bolt-on capabilities around payments. Um, But those were single-threaded. You know, if you want to make a payment, you initiate that payment file. Um, And what we're seeing increasingly, as Matt's talking about from a small business perspective, is the small business is having to go to all these disparate places into their accounting solution to get their view of cash flow, into their banking solution to get their view of the transaction banking, walk into a bank branch to get a lending facility that they might need to support their various needs. And so there was no integrated set of solutions or capabilities that really solve that. And a lot of the vision that we have now as we start to think about where FIS is positioned in this space is bringing that holistically in with the vision of where the small business operates, meeting them at point of need, instead of forcing them into an ecosystem where they're single threaded through some of those larger solutions that they were trying to take down market. Yeah, I've got a couple of, um, you know, experiences myself as an SME business owner um, that you guys will enjoy. You know, one is, of course, when I went to apply for, um, a, uh, a credit facility for my business in Hong Kong um, that they asked me for three years of bank statements hmm. from the bank that I banked with. Mm-hmm. Um, that was That's one example, which I think three years of financial statements or three years of bank statements is fairly common ask for, uh, you know, a line of credit facility for an SME. And it's like, but you guys already have this data. Why are you asking me for it? The other one, which uh, I, I'm assured has been changed now, was I was a customer of Emirates uh, Bank in Emirates MBD in Dubai with my small business. We won a government contract with the stock exchange to do training for them. But it was the biggest thing we'd done 
at that point in time. And so we had this contract, but of course the government pays really slowly. So we went to the bank to, uh, you know, look at a factoring facility or maybe look at a um, overdraft. And um, they said, yes, we can definitely provide you with an overdraft. We would just need security. And I was like, fine, what do you need in terms of security? And they said a cash deposit. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly how I reacted to it. But so it's not an easy path for these SMEs. Tyra, to your point, when we talk about this sort of systemically, we see a lot of work being done right now on um, you know things like financial wellness and financial health in the retail space. What would you see as the equivalent of that for SMEs and for the uh, small business space? Yeah, it's um, it's a great question, Brad. Because what we've been thinking about really is this life cycle of a small business customer. So as you think about a small business customer, we know it's not a monolithic category. There are clear points of differentiation. There's, you know, very different path for a high growth startup company than a family owned auto repair shop. And so what we're starting to see is how do you think about the stages that the small business is in? You know, everything from you're starting up a business, you need to set up the LLC, you need to be doing the onboarding, you need to onboard your buyers, you need to know how to interact with them and so on. Um, You need to establish a bank account in some cases. You know, it might be that your neighborhood bank or your local bank, you don't even know how to go through that process. Or or as you said, there's a variety of paperwork that needs to be set up and you're trying to get up and running today. So what we've been very focused on is how do you help that small business navigate their journey, um, starting with their point of inception all the way up through the financial health that comes from the fact that they're operating business where you have you know, fixed expenses and variable income. And so you're going to be able, you want to be in a position where, you know, Matt can look at his business tomorrow and say, I want to make sure that I have the funding in place to make payroll, knowing that I still have 90 days outstanding to receive payment on some of these invoices. And so that is the piece that I think today is just not easy to navigate. And so we want to be proactive around how do you do that almost to the point that to a small business customer becomes seamless to them. So they're not worried about it. They're focused on how do they manage and operate their business day in, day out. So Matt, let's just take a couple of examples of that. Um, You know, accounting, bookkeeping, uh, invoicing, you know, these are something that most businesses share, but right now, you know, we have this disparity. We have all of this, you know, transactional data in our bank accounts that should be able to easily go into an accounting system, but, you know, and yes, we can do CSV imports and things like that, but why haven't we got, you know, like accounting systems behind the login or, you know, how do you guys see the solution to this problem? Yeah, look, we see that, and that's a brilliant question because it's been it's been one that we've been really focused on, right? We see that accounting link as being key. A, a lot of small and micro businesses don't actually spend a lot of time in their accounting platform, right? They have a bookkeeper that comes in once a week or once a month, and they you know they either give them an Excel spreadsheet or some notes that they've scribbled or a box full of receipts. Um, but every small business needs to have that accounting. But and again, you don't want to spend 15 hours running your cafe and then come home and spend another two hours entering it all into your accounting system, especially to your point where it's already flowing through a system, right? That, that transaction has hit your bank account. You've sent an invoice out. That's been exactly. like this data is already there. So what's key for us and, and really we're trying to, to, to make doing business less work and we're trying to do it in such a way that 
you don't enter things twice, right? If, you, if you're in the front end and, and wherever this embedded finance is served up, it may be served up in your accounting platform and that's great, it's integrated. It may be served up in your digital banking front end. Wherever it's served up, it's automatically updating everything else that it needs to update, including your, your tax requirements and your accounting requirements. And that's absolutely key. And, and I feel like as well, back to your other point, there's, there's data that's there. I mean, you're talking about the bank having three years worth of your bank statements, right? There's data that's there that banks struggle to work out how to lend to small businesses because they go with these very traditional models. And we have other data. We know that your small business, for example, has $50,000 worth of invoices outstanding ready to be paid. We know they get paid usually within three to five days. That's really important information for a bank that wants to lend the money, and it's probably way more important than your last three years' worth of bank statements. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, so, that, that's the point, right? Yeah, exactly. So so making sure it's seamless with your uh, accounting platform is key, and then getting the data that's there and available shared amongst the, the players that can help make that small business's life easier is key as well. Tyree, I mean, I know you've been doing a lot of work on our, our accounting linking in. Anything else on that? Yeah, I would just add, I mean, this concept of sort of invisible accounting, right? So at the end of the day, I need imagine, if, I, <laughs> yeah, imagine a future state where you don't need to log into a bank interface. You can do all of that core banking activity from your accounting solution, irrespective of whether that's a fresh or so on. Um, and also when you go in to open a bank account, let's say, you know, you're someone that wants to go into a brick and mortar retail bank branch and open that bank account, that you can have an option to set up an accounting system and have that connectivity in your accountant being sort of served up with all of the information on your transaction history and your banking history immediately at point of, of establishing that relationship. We want to get closer to the central nexus of where these businesses operate. That is absolutely their accounting solution. And it's the GL that the banks provide in any ways that we can bring those two capabilities together um, with the, the goal of really reducing the amount of work associated with the small business. That is, that is our end state. So let's just uh, have a quick chat to one of FIS's strategic partners in the embedded finance space, Autobooks. We're going to talk to Derek Sutton um, from Autobooks. He was back on the show uh, quite recently, actually, but uh, good to have him back on. Let's hear what Derek has to say about embedded finance. So we have Derek Sutton, the VP of Marketing at Autobooks, who's joining us. Um, Derek, welcome back to the show. You've been on fairly recently, I think. Yeah. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me again. So tell me about how Autobooks is working with FIS uh, on the um, small business side. Yeah, we, we've actually partnered with them recently to become a truly embedded um, provider inside of their business banking suite, specifically to help them uh, upgrade and really enhance their small business banking experience. So one of the things we've been going to market with recently and really leaned into is we don't want to be a disjointed service provider. We don't want to just be another tab inside digital banking. We really want to make ourselves an embedded partner and provider that lives inside of the ecosystem of you know, a partner like FIS Digital Banking. It makes a lot of sense. We've been talking about uh, in the rest of the interview with FIS about how you know, accounting is a primary function, but it's so closely linked to banking and payments. And yet, you know, we've right now, it's just sort of this clunky CSV upload thing. So where do you see this going? In a few years, if I'm a small business operator, how will the world of accounting and banking, um, digital banking merge? Yeah, so great question. For us, uh, we feel like our the best opportunity we have as an embedded banking provider 
is to help businesses first get paid directly through the financial institution. The way I look at that, Brett, is if we're not in front of how the business owner deposits money as an ecosystem, as a service provider, then we're behind already, right? If you're not like what Square, PayPal, QuickBooks are doing with helping the business get paid, then you're automatically behind. And so where this is going is we want to get help financial institutions get back in front of how businesses get paid. They used to be in front when it came to in-person check and cash deposits. Now that payments are moving online, they need to get back ahead of that. So it starts there. Once they get paid through us as part of their banking experience, we then provide additional services that begin to round out that, that small business product flywheel, if you will, automate that transaction for record keeping, uh, post that transaction to a financial report, um, categorize that data for a lending opportunity, extend buy now, pay later capabilities to the end of that invoice. So now the business owner can interact with their consumers in a new way. And so hopefully what we become is really the, the part of the, of the relationship between the financial institution and the business owner that is the destination for the business owner. And it's a part of their daily workflow. It's not a place I go to just look at my transactions. Absolutely. Sounds great. Well, Derek, uh, thanks for joining us. Where can people find out more about Autobooks? Yeah, just uh, go to www.autobooks.co. You can also find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great. So, um, guys, one of the other things that I, I find um, this conversation extremely interesting because, as a small business owner, this is a real pain point for me. Um, you know, I've got like six businesses of my own. Um, but one area I'm very interested in is the predictive side. You know, you, Matt, you talked about invoices. If we know you've got invoices outstanding, um, but that leads us to the issue of uh, predictive cash flow. Now, one of the things that um, you know we're seeing Google Pay and Apple Pay and others look at um, upcoming expenses now in their wallets. You know, this seems to be an emerging piece in retail. But for SMEs, this is even more critical to understand your your cash flow. So, how do you? What are you guys doing at FIS in respect to building out some of these capabilities? Well, and this is a this is a I, I think a growth area as well, right? You need to you need to give them the basics first. And once the small business can can like manage that, because at the moment they're doing it on the back of an envelope with what they think they have outstanding, right. what's sitting in PayPal, what's coming in in checks, et cetera. And it's, it's kind of all over the place. So first of all, it's really just the, the basics, which is how, man, how many invoices are out there? How many are past due? How many are due? How many are coming in in the next couple of weeks? How many have been paid, but it's still, you know, a day or two days before the actual cash is going to hit your account? Like very basic stuff. And then I think the next layer that needs to go on top of that, and again, like really simple data that's there that we just need to make use of is, you know, Brett usually pays on time, whereas Tyra usually doesn't pay on time, right? So it's not just that there's an invoice out there that's due on the 30th. Who, right. who has that invoice and what's their, their typical way of doing things? And putting all of that together, you can get a really accurate view of what's going on. A, for the small business to make it like, like, understandable for them as to whether they can afford payroll at the end of the week or whether they need to go and talk to their financial provider about some kind of credit solution. But B, for the for the financial advisor to know how good this business is and whether they you know, should get a, a lending proposition, whether they should be calling them to help them grow, whether they're hitting certain parts of their life cycle. So yeah, that predictive stuff is super important. And I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it, but the data's all there today. Right, it's exactly. just sitting in disparate buckets. 
And I think too, Brett, you know, what we're trying to do is also that there, there are big categories around lending, around buy now, pay later, around use of credit, right? So as we think about this, there's a differentiation with bridge financing versus invoice-based financing and factoring versus I need a working capital line because I'm going out to buy equipment to operate my business. And so powered by this data with the insights that we can get from the accounting solutions and the bank data that we're getting from the banks that support us, right? We're in a position where we can provide the right lending event to these small business customers so they're not out paying, you know, 70% APR on something over time that just absolutely makes no sense for them. What they're really most concerned about is the timeliness of payment, being able to break those payments into smaller smaller buckets and uh, and fund those in a period that's cost effective for them. You know, so I, I get this, um, you know, you guys act as the glue for a, a whole lot of the financial services industry. Um, you know, obviously you, you're one of the largest payments processes. You, you provide core capabilities to, um, you know, all sorts of banks uh, around the world, but certainly in the United States. Um, you know, when I, I look at this, there's the potential of some significant disruption to those banks that um, you know have serviced SMEs in in the past, but it also sounds like there's really interesting revenue opportunities, particularly on the credit side, for these banks. Uh, you know, explain to me, um, you know, how you know banks fit into this puzzle of, of sort of these the, this sort of um, SME unified uh, you know banking platform you guys are building. So, in a couple of ways, I think, Brett. I think, I think techs and disruptors for a number of years now, and, and you, I'm sure, have featured a number of them on your show, have been playing more and more upmarket and downmarket into the traditional banking space. And I think that what banks need to start doing is not circling the wagons and trying to like make it harder for their customers to leave. They need to take their financial services, which is what they do best, and play up and down market there. So both taking their services and making them available to those fintechs up and down the market, but also providing those up and down market financial solutions, you know, create an invoice, business insurance, all of these things available from their banking front end. So it's kind of both. And, and I'm focused a lot at the moment on trying to help the banks do this stuff. But Tyra has been doing a lot of work around actually helping the banks get their tools and get their financial services up and down the market to other players, Tyra. Yeah, I think as we think about that space too, I mean, what we're seeing is banks are are looking for new methods to monetize, right? To bring on new deposits, to bring on lending, to drive non-interest income. And so the capabilities that we're putting forth really in this API-based microservices layer architecture that we're building is enabling these banks to go out and choose best of breed providers too, right? So they can chart their own destiny. They can look at what their verticalization stack looks like, the segments that they're targeting, where they operate. Um, And so many of the discussions with the banks have been, how do we quote unquote partner with some of these disruptors, disruptors, either to power their financial experiences or to bring them into our stack and leverage some of the capabilities where they've been driving really strong software applications, lending applications to help provide um, a richer set of experiences to the customers that they serve. So we're seeing this as symbiotic um, and the timing is now like the, the number of discussions Matt and I have had with the banks, you yeah, know, that okay. are powered by FIS. They're saying, give this to us, but make sure you're doing it in a way that, that we can understand it. We can digest it. And the technology supports the needs of the way our organization operates. 
Great. Well, let's um, talk to Chris Tremont. He's the Chief Digital Officer for Grasshopper Bank. And let's see what uh, he has to say about the way, you know, this has changed their tech to stack and the way they view uh, embedded finance at Grasshopper Bank. So uh, we'd like to welcome Chris Tremont, the Chief Digital Officer of Grasshopper Bank at this point. So, um, Chris, welcome to the show coming live from Money 2020, right? Hi, Brett. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here, live from sunny Las Vegas. Absolutely. So um, tell me a bit more about how this uh, relationship with FIS in terms of embedded finance came to be for uh, you guys at Grasshopper. Yes, it was, um, I think, fortuitous timing where FIS was looking to get into the embedded finance banking as a service game. Um, Grasshopper, as a, a digitally focused commercial bank based out of New York, works a lot with venture capital funds and portfolio companies. So the next natural move for us was to get into the fintech and banking as a service space. So timing aligned nicely, I think. It allowed us to bring in another partner of ours from a former uh, a former life, Treasury Prime, into the mix. And really these three companies that have um, a lot of individual experience working to, uh, you know, with, with banks and with fintechs and then coming together um, I think the people part of it is huge too, where there's like some interconnectivity amongst the three companies that just made this like a really impactful partnership that we're very excited about. So in respect to the whole small business play, you know, when we look at services like accounting, um, you know, small business loans or access to credit, you know, predictive cash flow, put on your fintech, uh, you know, hat here, you know, looking out sort of five to 10 years, how do you think embedded finance will change the, the financial and operational lives of small businesses in the future based on embedded finance? Yeah, broadly speaking, we couldn't be more excited about it within the grasshopper space and, and I think within the industry where, to me, I don't know, you could disagree with, with, with what I'm about to say, but it feels like SMBs are having their moment now with like what consumer was four or five oh, years great. ago or, or even what you were doing moving even before that, right? But now it's, you know, it's moving into the SMB space. But I think we're, we're probably only in the first or second inning here around what fintech and technology can do for SMBs. So probably right to think about what does the next five or 10 years look like? And I, I do think this embedded finance concept is going to radically change how business gets done. It's going to be a win-win for both you know, the small businesses using it, the banks that can get behind it and figure out right, like how to organize, how to use technology to capitalize on some of this and help move small business forward as the pandemic has pushed everything digital probably five or 10 years faster than we would have gotten there otherwise. Um, but I, I think it's going to help small businesses, things that you said, better manage their, their finances, their cash flow, um, have real-time insights and data that they can use for whatever, you know, if it's an e-commerce company or some type of marketing company that can use this to better serve their client base at the end of the day. And and it's really, I think, interesting to see where embedded finance is coming, sort of this next wave, right, yeah. of banking as a service and APIs. And now it's like, how do you embed these, whether it's deposit or payments workflows into In an SMB world. platform? Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Absolutely. So, Chris, listen, that's all we've got uh, time for, but thanks for joining us. How do people find out more about Grasshopper Bank? 
Yeah, thanks, Brett. To learn more about Grasshopper Bank, just visit grasshopper.bank. That's easy. Chris Tremont, Chief Digital Officer of Grasshopper, thanks for joining us live from Vegas. All right, so um, guys, we've only got a few minutes left. I would like to um, sort of take a bit of, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm a futurist, so I look to look a bit out into the future. Um, and so we see a lot of activity with, um, you know, Plaid doing partnerships with banks and they're a partner of yours, of course, and Stripe and PayPal in the mix. And, um, you know, we see in, in China, for example, the uh, significant disruption that Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay have had there. But let's play this out a few years, you know, five, 10 years out in the future. How do you think an SME is going to manage uh, their banking uh, within the embedded finance world? Uh, put your future hat on and tell me what it's going to be like for, for an SME from, from startup through to operational um, competency. I feel like that it's, it's going to be a, a dashboard solution for an SME that is not just a you know, uh, a, a list of different links to go off to different systems, but it's actually a curated and combined set of services that that SME wants. They'll say, I want, you know, my, my bank account details and my Home Depot card and whatever else as far as bank balance is concerned. And I want them to play into this accounting and I want that to then feed into whatever and start to get a real data-driven view of that. And I feel like we talk about SMEs like that that they they don't understand um, finances. They do understand finances, right? But they don't necessarily, like you know, to go to the bank and ask for a particular kind of loan because it's best for their situation. Right. So I feel like that dashboard is also going to understand the data, understand where they are in their experience based on what they're doing and say, you shouldn't be using this, this credit card. You should be right. using this kind of loan, right? And really giving them those kind of financial insights and be like a virtual CFO for that small business. That's where I really see it working and coming together. Yeah, I call this moving from products to experiences, right? Is that, right. You, you know, as a bank, you should be product agnostic. If you can find, you know, a basic line of credit that will fulfill the need for the customer, providing them with that, at the right place and time is more critical than what label you have attached to the, the product itself. So Tyra, um, you know, how can, um, you know, if people are interested in, in working with you guys on this, want to be a part of this sort of embedded finance marketplace or network that you guys are building, um, where would you suggest they go? How do they get in touch? So I would say a couple of things, Brett. Um, if you're an existing bank, come through your bank relationship manager and uh, and there's a lot more to share within that space. For new customers, fintechs that are looking to engage with FIS, um, we have a whole bunch of information that's going to be available through our website as well as just out in market as we push more around the services and capabilities that we're launching in the next two months. Some very exciting announcements coming from us. And um, we would love to engage more and share more of the vision with those customers and uh, hope that, you know, people continue to see FIS as a leader in the space and, and how we're deploying all of our assets to power the small businesses that, that run this, this economy for us. Fantastic. Well, in honour of Matt and my Australianness, I'll say you beauty. <laughs> no worries, mate. That was great. Um, but thank you, Tyra and Matt, for joining us on uh, Breaking Banks today. Brett, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, um, Brett. I, I will say, just coming back to our first uh, for the opening, 
if you think that fintech is in a bub- bubble, just think about what we've been talking about this segment, this episode, and the amount of work that still needs to be done to embed banking and finance in um, you know, SMEs and, and individuals' lives in a more constructive way so that we maximise the utility of banking. And um, that's, that's it for this segment. We'll be taking a quick break. We'll be right back after the break with some more uh, Breaking Banks content. Have you ever felt frustrated when checking out online or making a payment over the phone? The GoCart team at FIS Impact Labs certainly have. And that's why they created a better payments experience. GoCart recognizes your email and lets you pay quickly anywhere with no passwords and no long forms. You can pay faster for anything, even things you wouldn't expect like healthcare, professional services and more. GoCart also goes beyond online checkout and allows you to pay easily by email, text or with QR codes. If you sell products or services online or in store, find out how you can use GoCart to simplify payments and increase your sales at gocartpay.com slash podcast. That's gocartpay.com slash podcast. GoCart with a C. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Hi, this is Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. And I want to tell you about the brand new book Richard Petty and I have coming out in November called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. This new book examines the philosophy of humanity as a species and how the 21st century is going to be the most disruptive, contentious period humanity has ever lived through. During the pandemic alone, we saw the wealth of the world's billionaires surpass $10 trillion for the first time. The richest 1% of Americans today hold more wealth than the bottom 90% and often don't pay taxes. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic in 2020, but in reality, artificial intelligence could disrupt even more jobs, up to 80% of jobs today. The new industries we're creating will ironically face labour shortages because we simply aren't training our students with the right skills today. In the first 20 years of the 21st century, we saw protests double from the 20th century averages, while attendance at these protests climbed over a 1,000%. At the heart of this is economic uncertainty about our future. And this is being amplified by the pandemics. It will be amplified by AI and automation, climate change, and of course, inequality. So how will the next 30 years play out? AI has the potential to disrupt, but also to reframe government, making big government small. Universal health care, free education, universal basic income, and massive mobilization of resources to mitigate climate change will all be part of the response needed to these seismic changes. The realization that humanity needs to work together may be the biggest lesson of all. In techno-socialism, we examined four possible futures, and three of those possible futures result in a chaotic and divisive world with rolling crises. But one possible future, what we call techno-socialism, makes possible an inclusive, planned and emerging society where broad prosperity is possible. The book is out for global release in November. Feel free to check out www.riseoftechnosocialism.com for more information on the book. 
and where you can get your copy. I'd be very grateful for your support and consideration of this new book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. Well, the first part of this week, Amber Bucher and I spent the week in Las Vegas uh, for very long days and nights talking to all kinds of entrepreneurs from the fintech space. And so coming up over the next several episodes, you'll be hearing some of our interviews from that. And we're going to start today with Cody Barbo from Trust and Will. One of the things that we were really trying to do is find companies beyond the traditional, uh, you know, digitizing, gathering deposits and making loans uh, kind of outside of the, the normal domain. And where are the bigger changes happening around the edge of banking? And uh, Trust and Will is a company that takes on the estate planning and uh, creating wills for your family. So we'll, we'll talk to Cody here in a few minutes, but this will be the first of many uh, coming up from Money 2020. Hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm here now with Cody Barbo from Trust and Will. Uh, kind of self-explanatory name, but you're definitely in a different spot than a lot of the companies here. Tell us about the company and what you do. Yeah, so great to be here. So I have been an entrepreneur for the last decade. It's my third startup, second venture-backed business. And about four years ago when my wife and I got married, our anniversary is next week, uh, I have to shout her out real quick. We, we sat down and talked about the important things in life. We knew that we'd be filing taxes together, that we should probably look at term life policies, working with a financial advisor. And a will seemed like the fourth pillar to go and kind of pursue. And having my entire life be online, digital native, it seemed just crazy to me to go offline, to go set this up, spend thousands of dollars with an attorney, knowing that our situation is fairly straightforward. And I wasn't alone. And my, my co-founders and I now, all, all married with kids, very much, I call it the elder millennials, the 30 plus crowd, you know, making these more responsible decisions. And you don't have a mass market consumer brand around estate planning. Education is probably the biggest barrier. Um, talked to a lot of my young, successful friends that are married with kids, homeowners, can't talk about this confidently. Talked about it with my own parents as the oldest of the siblings. They'd never brought this up before. Do you guys even have an estate plan? Where is it located? What's my role? Who do I call? It's a common questions that everybody I think has on their minds. And even their digital assets, something that no one's thinking about from their social media, emails. I've gifted my dad some crypto. I don't know what it's worth. I should probably check as a good reminder. But just thinking through this multi-generational lens and what really we wanted to pursue this was the how many people don't have this. 60% of the population does not have an estate plan. And wealth does not have to be the trigger. If you're a parent with minor children or if you're a sandwich generation, us, taking care of an aging parent or grandparent, you're going to have to step in and make medical, financial, or legal decisions on somebody's behalf. So you have a number of caregivers that'll go from one to three to one to two in this country. And you have millennials, 90% of all kids are born to our generation now. And it just really, it's this pivotal time that like, how do we build something that is easy, inclusive, doesn't break the bank? And that's really what got us on this journey four years ago. Well, and as the classic saying goes, if you don't decide, the laws of your state will decide yeah, what happens much so. to your kids and your assets and, yeah. and all of that. And, and to your point, it's not just about estate taxes, because as the threshold has gone yeah. up over you know, the last couple of decades, yeah, yeah. Um, it may or may not have anything to do with paying an estate tax, but it's about what you want to happen to your assets and your family after you're gone. It's legacy. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. We, when we were thinking of names for the company, we actually looked up the word legacy and the definition of the word is the money and property you leave behind in your will. But that's not how people think of it. And when, when it comes to estate planning, you know, we've always thought of it as an act of love. You don't do this for yourself. What do you care? You're dead. But you do it for your family. 
and trying to make it easier for them. Because if you've talked to anybody who's been on the, the post-death side, the loss of a loved one, a parent, a relative, it creates a mess. And it, it can strain relationships and litigation can happen. And it's, that's not the way to do this, right? So, Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I have a lot of personal empathy around this. When I was at the stage of life you just described, that was nearly three decades ago for yeah. me. Um, and, you know, it was a very manual, paper-driven process. And what did I do? I called an attorney friend and he drew up some documents and we signed them and all that. And here in 2021, it's pretty much the exact same process. Yeah, right? it's, it's been the same for almost 500 years, if you can believe it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's ugly and it's, it's, it's messy. Uh, and then I've gone through it personally. I lost my mom a couple of years ago, my mother-in-law just in the last year and dealing with um, all of that and all the documents yeah. and how manual it is. And so, you know, I, on the show, we, we like to look at um, people that are, are really kind of solving new problems, not kind of, you know, re-solving mm -hmm. uh, the, the same ones. And a lot in the consumer space is, um, you know, still lots of interesting things going on there. Yeah. But I think in your space, it, it's pretty wide open. Do, do you have competitors today? Yeah, I mean, most estate plans are still done offline with attorneys. You have about 100 million people that have done this with attorneys for the last 50 years. And in the online space, the more relevant player that people would know, your listeners, is LegalZoom because they've been around for two decades, right. now a public company. But they're not an estate planning company. They've offered estate plans, but their primary customers are SMBs, doing business formation, LLCs, trademarks, copyrights, et cetera. So when we looked at who else in the space and how could we innovate, there weren't that many companies to go and build off of, you know, I call it R&D, rip off and duplicate. Who could we rip off and duplicate from that's doing this really well? And there weren't any. So our R&D was figured out ourselves. And the last three and a half years since we've brought product to market, we've really made something of this company. We've helped almost 300,000 families in all 50 states. We've raised 23 million in venture capital. And more so than how many people we've helped, it's the experience that they're getting. These are still families that we deal with. And some are coming in for great reasons. They just had a baby, just bought their first home. Others dealing with death, divorce, health scares, COVID this last year and a half was the most clear. And we give people this really friendly user experience, which yes, it's mostly digital. You don't have to talk to anybody if you don't want to. But if you do, we have seven days of support with humans behind it. And often on our five-star reviews, you have Fabio and Meg and Megan and Aaron all called out by name. And it just makes it a human experience, which is what this should be at the end of the day. Yeah, you mentioned 50 states, and that's another thing kind of unique about this is there are 50 different sets of state laws yeah. around all this. How are you dealing with that? We hired an attorney as our first employee, a very good one who happens and to And you're not an attorney, right? No, none of the co-founders are. Yeah. But I think that's why we've had the success is that we, we've always looked at this through the lens of a consumer as husbands now and also as fathers to our kids and as sons to our parents. And our first hire, Patrick Hicks, who's 10-year trust and state's attorney, he was working on client estates from five to 500 million. And the hardest thing that he had to do in his profession was turn people away because they didn't have the asset minimum or they, didn't, they couldn't afford the attorney. And that's most attorneys that we talked to is they turn clients away all the time. So what are they left to do? What, what most of them do is they don't do this. And rather than push them off and they go figure it out, eventually they make enough money or save up enough, they should be referring them to trust them all. Because for 90, 95% of households, we're an amazing, amazing fit. And people think they have complexity and then you start talking to them. They might have a couple hundred thousand to a couple million, including the value of their home and maybe equity or retirement. It's not that complex. And you can still have a little bit of complexity within Trustable's ecosystem. We have attorney support. We have financial advisors and a product for them that they refer their clients to us. But we try and make it easy. 
So do you, um, are you, are you focused on going directly to consumer or are you working through like uh, asset managers, yeah, estate both. planners? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So primary has been direct to consumer, you know, we're called trust and mold. The web, hopefully we'll have a jingle one day, but trust and mold, we got our commercial, we got radio podcast ads, digital marketing. We've seen a lot of success in the partnership side. So very much estate planning touches everything in our lives, finances, insurance, tax, real estate, planned giving, employer benefits. And we work with a lot of big bank credit unions and we also have a product for advisors. So the RAA space has been an amazing channel for us because the question that we ask them is what percentage of your clients have an estate plan? Who do you refer to? Well, you just start to hear excuses. These are some of the biggest banks in the country. And the idea is that we partner with them. We give their members a preferred discount, but their customers coming to us are still going to get that same signature experience. So we take really good care of them and work with Fifth Third Bank and have compliance approvals and integrations with Schwab and Fidelity, a bunch of great institutions. Well, and, and even for those great institutions, uh, they can't practice law. No. So, so, so they can't draft the mm -hmm. documents for the customer. Correct. Um, they want to administer those documents as trustee or oh, yeah. as executor or both. Uh, so there's a big gap there, mm -hmm. right, from their side as well, but also from the user. Uh, how, how about you know, workflows and what comes next, because the, the thing I, I always think about this is uh, I never know what's next, right? Yeah. I get another email from the attorney that says, okay, now you need to sign, you know, this document here yeah. and send it, you know, it, wet signature and send right. it, you know, send it back to my office, yep. which in my case was 2000 miles away. Mm -hmm. Um, I, my mom was back in Ohio where I was born and, yeah. uh, I'm in Seattle. So yeah. it was a long distance thing. Well, part of, part of the reason why we come to conferences like Money 2020. You know, some people look at us as a legal tech on the surface, but we we look at ourselves as a wealth tech company. And the reason why is we look at our business through the lens of inheritance, wealth transfer. Estate planning is wealth transfer. And the 65 trillion that's going to pass between generations over the next 10 to 20 years, this wealth transfers through probate or through a trust and estate administration. And this opportunity that we have to create an end-to-end -end digital experience is what we're building towards. So we've digitized the execution piece in some states. We're the first and only provider of electronic wills in about a half dozen states in the United States where instead of having to print the docs, go get them signed, notarized, and witnessed in person, you do it through a partnership that we have with Notarize. And you do a video call with the notary, show a valid form of ID. It's super legit. It's like what you'd expect in all 50 states, especially two years into a pandemic. But we're now actively lobbying to bring more states electronic will laws live, and then eventually electronic trusts and beyond. So uh, I didn't know any states had that. So how many have it today? About a half dozen. We okay. got, uh, the first one was Who Nevada. Was the first? Yeah, Nevada. Okay. yeah, where we are. Uh, yeah. Not a shock, maybe. Very friendly trust state right. in uh, 2019. Right. And uh, then Florida, Indiana, Arizona followed. And then we have Utah, Colorado, Illinois, and a couple others on the way. Okay. Yeah. And, and so you're advocating that everybody adopt. Are there uniform standards that someone has set or are you promulgating those? Yeah. So there's an organization called the Uniform Law Commission. So we sent Patrick, our head of legal, to uh, Chicago in the middle of winter, Anchorage, Alaska as well, a year later to pass the EWIL Act. So he had worked on this drafting committee for electronic wills, a bunch with amazing, amazing people at the ULC. So the EWIL Act passed in fall of 2019. And that kind of paved the way for more states to adopt this more easily. So we're... Uh, Florida, Indiana, Arizona, and Nevada were, you know, relatively duct taped together because it was so new. You have Colorado, Utah, Illinois, and the next wave of states that are following this uniform language. And the hope is that, you know, they tweak it as needed for their specific state, but it should make the adoption a little bit faster.
that might also um, bring more competitors to your space, right? It's you, you had to do a lot of that yeah. heavy spade work. We welcome it, though. I mean, this is this is an industry where the rising tide lifts all boats. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see people look at different angles to penetrate trust in estates, whether it's probate, estate settlement. You have trust funding opportunities. You know, we we look pretty deeply into trust banking as a future opportunity. There's never been a trust neobank, and the idea that you can one-click open your trust accounts within Trustimals platform experience in the future is really compelling, and we're having some early conversations of what we could build next year. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you announced that you um, just signed a partnership agreement with SoFi. Yeah. And you just raised your Series B, I think. Yeah, $15 million last year, so $23 million to date. Wow. So what brings you here to Monday 2020? What what are you looking for? Yeah, it's, it's kind of three three lenses. The first is just seeing old connections, folks that we hadn't seen since this last conference two years ago and just having too many Zoom meetings to you know continue doing that. It's great to see people again. The second is kind of teeing up for a lot of our bigger partnership opportunities. A lot of big banks, credit unions are starting to become an emerging channel for us. It's a great place to be. Now I have a team that's helping take meetings while we're on podcasts like this. And then the third is kind of prepping for our next growth equity round. So, you know, looking at later next year, we see an opportunity to bring on a new investor to the cap table to really drive us to that next level, two to three Xing our headcount, launching new partnerships, but launching new business units as well within the company. So, and, and maybe those are things you're not ready to talk about yet, mm-hmm. but when you raise another round of capital, that means you've got you know, kind of something that's going to drive that growth. And yeah. is that product led or yeah. is that partnership led or, yeah. you know, what's that look like? Yeah. I mean, we still want to double down on our direct to consumer efforts. You know, we look at this as a winner take all market and in order to get there, we need to be everywhere. It's like almost like all of our marketing across all channels, online, offline. It's usually the first time consumers are thinking about estate planning. No one else is talking to this about them unless they have a relationship with a financial advisor. So as much as we are introducing them to trust small, we're introducing them to trust and estates. And it's an opportunity to welcome them to the site, lead with great educational content, walk them through the product, never make them feel overwhelmed or rushed. So we'll continue to open up the top of funnel, not just for people that have, uh, have, have are creating this for the first time, but people that have had an estate plan for 10, 20, 30, 40 years that have never updated it and that we bring it online for the first time. Yeah, it's interesting you said that. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, are you seeing that now? Do you have people adopting you as a, a, an update of a old manual yeah, plan? Yeah, so we brought on AARP as an investor in our last round. And in July, we announced our exclusive relationship with AARP and the 38 million members as a member benefit. So we have a massive marketing campaign online, offline that we're running with them over the next couple of years to bring, I think 60% is what they surveyed. 60% of their members do not have any estate plan. And even then that 40% needs to update it. You got people busting out the typewriter estate plans from decades ago that just need to be digitized. And the language is fairly statutory. It follows blue backed onion skin paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. But it's wild that it's, you know, a lot of these estate plans are still simple. So uploading them into a new digital format is not too hard. Oh, that's great. So we're working on some pretty interesting things. Uh, what else do you want to talk about? I didn't think to ask you. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite thing to bring up on podcasts is for listeners, if you are a parent or if you're a homeowner or if you're pending caregiver uh, with some aging parents or grandparents, like, please have this conversation. It's not as hard as you think. It's not as scary as you think. Even if you don't go with Trustimal, we have some great content on the website to make this more comfortable. And I think more than anything, we want all families to have an estate plan, whether they, they have wealth or not, this is the right time to be doing it and don't push it off. It's not as scary as you think. So come check us out though. If you, if well, you that's a good one. message. How can people find out more? 
Uh, trustandwill.com. We're very active on social at Trust and Will, or if you want to ping me directly for entrepreneurial advice, as I've done this a couple of times, at Cody Barbo, and uh, would love to have conversations. Great. Well, Cody, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.